All right, Wrestling with Theology fans, this is Pastor Dougman digging deeper this week with you into Psalm 34. We're into single psalms for the next few weeks, and these are some good psalms to go through and take individually, especially Psalm 34, which we have this week, which is one of the several that has a specific point in time and historical reference in the superscription for the psalm. So let's look at the superscription for Psalm 34. Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so he drove him out and he went away. All right, what is this thing with changing his behavior before Abimelech? And who is this Abimelech? Abimelech was a title given to the Philistine rulers. So this one is actually talking about his time when he was fleeing from Saul, when he was under the protection of King Achish of Gath in 1 Samuel 21 and 22. We have it recorded in 1 Samuel 21, starting in verse 10. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. The servants of the Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands? And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? So we have here... David changing his behavior as he is there. And then immediately he leaves from Gath and goes to the cave of Adullam, where Saul catches up with him again. So this is the historical background behind the psalm that we are looking at this week. He is on the run from Saul in this time where he's pretending among his enemies, the ones who he had fought the most wars against, pretending to be insane. So what does David say in his pretended insanity? Well, this is a very lucid psalm because he talks very greatly about the God in who he trusts and that he has the tangible example of his being delivered from all of his troubles and being eventually given the kingdom which has been promised to him already from all the way back in 1 Samuel 16, when Samuel anointed him in Bethlehem. So we look at the first few verses of the psalm. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. So we look at this and we have even in the time where he's in his deepest, darkest place up to this point is that he is on the run. He went from being the greatest warrior of the nation to being the public enemy number one of Israel, and especially of King Saul. But even then, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth, encouraging everyone around to magnify the Lord with him. And knowing that I sought the Lord, 
and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Now we have a couple of other instances of radiant faces that are not ashamed. Most prominent one is Moses in Exodus 34, when he comes down from the mountain the second time, after the golden calf, after receiving the stone tablets again with the Ten Commandments written on them, that his face glowed and was radiant from the having been in contact with God and having been in the presence of God. And his face would radiate and would glow with that glory of the reflection of God every time he went into the tent of meeting to talk with God. So they had to put a veil over his face. In Acts chapter 7, when Stephen is giving his great defense against the elders and his great sermon, they talk about his face glowing and being radiant. And neither of these men were put to shame. Now granted, yes, Moses was not allowed to enter the promised land at the end of his life. Stephen, shortly after there, is stoned to death. Not the happiest of endings for each of them, but again, we look to it as the grave being just a place marker on the route to eternal life. As both were faithful to God in their witnessing, in their ministries, so then they are not put to shame, even though they died you know, you know, in a you know, strange circumstance, as Moses did at the end of Deuteronomy, or being stoned to death like Stephen. Still, not ashamed, even though facing those sorrowful deaths. We look again at verses 6 and 7. This poor man cried. And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. There are a couple of times we have this picture of the angel of the Lord encamping around those who fear God. One of the main ones is 2 Kings 6, when Elisha is talking about the army that is surrounding the city and having no fear in the presence of such a large army. And he prays to God that his associate would be able to see what he sees. And surrounding this large army is yet another army of angelic host. And God further points out in other places in Kings that you don't even need an entire angelic host. Only one angel can go out and kill an army of 185,000 soldiers. So you have these moments there where you have the angelic protection shown, not just as we have the idea of guardian angels, but actually the angelic host defending the people against the demonic attacks that are coming against them. And that's all great and abstract. We said, I said there were talk of tangible understanding of God's presence and protection. That's verses 8 and 9. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. One of the great hymns of the 20th century is Fred Bowie's What is This Bread? And 
lines end every stanza with taste and see. Now, this is the point. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see the Lord is king. Taste and see the Lord is free. Inviting us to understand that tangible offering of God's protection and his presence. Specifically in the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper. But you can also see that in the points of daily life as well. That there are just tangible moments you can't explain. People look at you crazy when you try to explain it. But there are just times where you can almost literally taste and see God being there with you. And that is part of his protection. And it says, those who fear him, those who seek the Lord will have no lack. Well, no lack of what? Because I know plenty of Christians who lack a lot of things. You look into some of the third world countries where we send missionaries and the Christians there seem to lack some of the most basic things that we take for granted. But they are also some of the most joyous people because they understand the great privilege and the great honor of having the word of God with them and the word of God being proclaimed to them. Something that we also take for granted as Americans. So the encouragement here is fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who seek him have no lack. There is no lack of the treasures that you can find when you seek after him. And that is what David is really encouraging 11th century Israel to do, 21st century America to do. Seek the Lord so that you can have no lack of what you need. He continues on in verse 10. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Now here's the question. Who doesn't want a long life? Who doesn't want to die peacefully at 90, 100, 110? I mean, who wouldn't like to be able to have the Guinness Book of World Records entry that they were the person who lived the longest on this earth? I mean, there's not a whole lot of people who don't want a long life and they want a bountiful life. And sometimes we don't get it because God knows that some of us can't handle a great bounty. Pray as hard as you want to win the Powerball or the Mega Millions lottery. You might not win it because God knows that your life might be ruined by a couple hundred million dollars being dropped in your lap. I'm just saying, if it hasn't happened yet, it might not happen. And it's not just the odds of winning either. But David asks the question, what man is there who desires life in those many days that he may see good? How does he respond to that? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Now we have again some law that we find hard to do. Keep your tongue from evil. 
I mean, this is all the things of gossip and slander and lying and all of this. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace. Not just seek it, though. Pursue it. Run after it. Be vigilant and be active in that following after peace. Trying to capture it. Much like a lion on the Serengeti trying to grab hold of one of the zebras that are stampeding by. He wants that zebra because well, zebra tastes good, I guess. So you have that desire to pursue like that lion going after that zebra. That is the picture of the pursuit of peace that you need in this world. And then we have God being there for the righteous, looking after them, the eyes being toward them, and his face being against those who do evil. This is why God gave the benediction to Aaron that his countenance be lifted upon you, that his face may shine upon you and be gracious. Not that he look at us in disgust at our sins, but he looks at us in love as his children who have been covered by the blood of our Savior. What happens to those who he sets his face against? Their memory is cut off from the earth. What happens when you die? Everything that you wanted goes with you. All of your plans, even those who have great legacies to hand on to their children and grandchildren and so forth, well, all of their ideas for it are gone because they're dead. Now the next generation has their turn at saying what they want the legacy to be. And it might not be what their father or grandfather had wanted for it. But their memory is cut off from the earth, except for maybe the mentions if they have some great mansion or something that they built for themselves as a monument to keep their memory alive. So why be righteous? Why do all this stuff? And not just to have the tangible taste and see that the Lord is good. But he picks up in verse 17. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. Here's the question. Who's writing this? Well, it's David. David, the shepherd king. You know, the one who defeated Goliath. What is he writing? When is he writing this? He is writing it as he is running away from Saul as an enemy of the state. What's his crime? Breathing, quite honestly. Breathing and being blessed by God. That's why Saul tries to pin him to the wall twice with a spear before he has to run away. So David understands what he's talking about. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. No, the righteous cannot just call out the first time and expect that God will answer them. And then, well, okay, if he does, in his grace and mercy, that is wonderful. But then what happens the next time? Well, they expect the same type answer, don't they? 
And what happens if he tarries a little bit? What happens if he decides the afflictions should multiply a little bit? Because we see this happening all through the scriptures. To David, as he's running away from Saul. To Joseph, as he is in slavery and then in prison in Egypt. The whole nation of Israel, as they are wandering around the wilderness for 40 years. The apostles, as they go out from Jerusalem to spread the gospel. They are afflicted in many ways. And according to church tradition, all but one of them face a gruesome death. Only one dies of natural causes in old age. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Even in the midst of his anxiety, because I'm sure he is extremely anxious being hunted like a rabid dog. But still, he has the faith to believe that God is near him, that God is there watching over him and protecting him, and that God will, in his time, deliver him out of all of the troubles that he has. And then we get to verse 20. And here is another one of David's times. We saw plenty of them back in Psalm 22, but now we get to Psalm 34 and another reference to the crucifixion. Verse 20, he keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. For this we go over to John's Gospel, chapter 19, starting at verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So this idea of his bones not being broken links to the fact that he will will himself to die after yelling, it is finished, and committing his spirit into his father's hands. And then they come along because the Jewish leaders want to have it all done before the Sabbath comes up, because it's a high Sabbath, because it's Passover Sabbath. And they go and they break the legs of the robbers on either side of them. But they come to Jesus and see he's already dead. And so they pierce his side just to prove that he is dead. And therefore the water and the blood, having already separated from each other, pours out from his side. And then they are able to tell Pilate, yes, they are dead. He is pierced, but his bones are not broken. And, of course, this has always uh, eluded me in understanding as to how you can have no broken bones in a crucifixion and having the nails driven in. But that's not for me to know, apparently. And there are probably many other places that people have tried to come up with understandings of that, and I leave you to finding them. I suggest doing something other than a Google search for it, but 
you know, Google might help you as well. But now we got the last two verses here, uh, verses 21 and 22. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Again, we have this idea, this affliction being that line between the wicked and the righteous. The wicked will be slayed by their affliction. The righteous will be redeemed from their afflictions. And that is the point of Jesus coming to earth in the first place, is the redemption of mankind, to redeem the life of his servants, so that those who take refuge in him, those who have faith in him, will not be condemned. Therefore, Jesus can say in Mark 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Because that is the fine line between the righteous and the wicked. Faith in Jesus. If you have it and you take refuge in that faith, you are saved. If you do not have it, you are condemned. Now what about the people who have it but don't take refuge in it? It's hard to do faith in Jesus. As the first commandment teaches us to Love, trust God above all things. The all things is the problem. The all things is the point of Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth, verse 1. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. This all things is the important thing. Because if you have doubts in anything, and yes, as sinful human beings, we do have doubts. Nobody is going to have perfect faith. Because if you could have perfect faith, you wouldn't need Jesus, would you? Because Jesus comes to help our unbelief. As the father of the child who is demon-possessed begged, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That's the cry of each and every Christian. That Jesus come and help the times when we don't believe. When times that the circumstances around us lead us to not want to believe that what God is saying is true and that God is really with us. But that's why David wrote Psalm 34. For you, for me, but also for him. To remind him that the Lord is always near to those who take refuge in him, to those who love him and trust in him. And that was David, the man after God's own heart. Even in the midst of all of his afflictions, still writing psalms to show his faith in his Lord and his Savior. All right, that's it for this week of Digging Deeper. It was a great depth of Psalm 34. Next week we get into Psalm 35. I encourage you to come back on Monday for the Confessional Corner as we continue going through Apology Article 5 on love and the fulfilling of the law. We are almost to the end of it, so we're getting close to that point where we can go on to something else because 
that is the problem with Article 4 and 5 of the Apology, is it goes on forever. But then again, people say the same thing about the 150 Psalms, too. So, we like the long treks here at Wrestling with Theology. But until next time, this is Pastor Doug Minton wishing you God's richest blessings as you wrestle with theology this week. Amen.